For now, we're going to come around the Word of God. And uh, this, is, this is funny. Um, it's, it's Leviticus chapter 18. And on, on Friday night, one of the shows that showed up, I think it was on Netflix, was that I, Tonya show. It was the debacle about the uh, Tonya Harding scandals and the, you know, with the, the ice skating stuff back in, the Ameri- you know, back in America back 20 or 30 odd years ago. And they got her playing the character, sort of narrating the story at the end of it. And, and it's about halfway through the movie. She goes, all you guys, all you did, there's some feedback of you, mate. Um, all, you, all you guys tuned in for the incident. Not the backstory, not all the other stuff that happened, but just the incident. And of course, there was a, a gruesome incident involved in that time. And when I think of Leviticus, preaching on Leviticus... And we think about all the history and all the stuff that's being talked about in our society at the moment. Chapter 18 is the incident. This is the chapter that you, if you were, gee, I wonder where we go with Leviticus. This is probably the one that probably fueled the biggest amount of interest. Where are we going to go with this particular chapter? We've had a lot of airplay with this one lately. In the last couple of years, even as recent as last week in, um, in Q&A. It's been used and abused by people on both sides of the argument. Today, I actually want us to walk away with a better handle on a touchy topic. So that we have wisdom in how we interact with this topic out in the world around us. But today I also believe there is a much bigger picture than just one line in this chapter to look at. And I'm uh, really looking forward to what the Lord might want to say to us all today as we reflect on how this applies to all of us. So if you've got your Bibles open, we will begin. And I'm going to skip around the chapter a bit today just to set some context. So verse 1 to 5 is where we'll start. And then I'll skip to the end. We'll look at the middle shortly. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Some key words in there. We'll come back to them. Down to verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. We'll look at these in a moment. Because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. Do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. The people of God here are being taught a valuable lesson 
But I believe translates to us as well. This is something we would do well to remember as we think about our faith expression. As God's redeemed people, Israel wasn't in Egypt anymore. We know this already. There was a way of life that was going on there that God took them away from. You were once slaves in Egypt, but I made you free. I redeemed you. That's the story of God's work in Israel's time. It involved being saved from physical slavery, but we also understand that it was a a setting of free in a spiritual sense as well that they were being freed to be who they were in God, not be bound by the idolatrous way all around them. Last week's passage showed us that although they had left Egypt, Egypt sadly hadn't fully left them. There was the presence of idolatry still going on around them and, and, and God actually had to call that for what it was. He said, that is murder and adultery the shedding of innocent blood. It was something to worship idols, to worship anything else other than the living God would actually cause a person to forfeit their place in God's people. So we sort of counter this. God called for all sacrifice to take place at the tent of meeting, at the place where worship and reverence towards God could be restored in an accountable, communal way. This was to give them a chance to make a clean break with Egypt. Friends, have we made a clean break with Egypt? Because we're not there anymore. If we are in Christ, we're not there no more. In the case of Israel, their past could be erased and their shame and their guilt could be removed by days such as the Day of Atonement, something that Christ has has fulfilled the need for. And we know that their future in God looked amazing and fresh with good things to come. There was what was called a promised land at the tail end of their journey. But between the redemption that already experienced and the promise that was to come, God is teaching them here to stay faithful. Because while their past of Egypt was done with, the next spiritual and physical journey on the horizon was looming and it had a whole new level of challenges to deal with. There was a land ahead which was going to be a place of prosperity for Israel. But there's a slight hitch with this. That land of prosperity is actually called Canaan right now. Canaan had a way and a culture which was rife with perversion and abuse. It was a land where every primal instinct was explored and sin abounded as a result. It was harmful. There was a land full of all kinds of idolatry that demanded extreme behaviour and sacrifice. Their deities were not relational like the living God, 
When God says, I am the Lord God, he's speaking of himself with the language of someone who's, who's dwelling amongst people. It's a, it's a close, a relational God. But the gods of the Canaanites were silent. They were lifeless. They were understood to be appeased, not lovingly worshipped. In Canaan, if you wanted good crops, if you wanted fertile livestock or even a fertile womb at home, you would initiate this with sexual acts at shrines to the appropriate pagan deities who were believed to facilitate this. If you wanted to show devotion in the most utmost way and try to get something over and above that, then there were terrible links you could go to in order to try to get that. Towards a lifeless deity, you did all the work. You bore all the cost. And you tried in vain to gain approval from aloof and angry deities. And the story of your life was, if it's not working out, try harder. God rightly called this Canaanite system evil. Since God considered idol worship an act of adultery and murder, then Canaan had loads of blood on its hands right now. Animals killed needlessly. Men and women sexually abused. Children murdered. All for demons. That's the reason that this system was going to be judged by God himself. As far as God was concerned, even the land had become defiled. Instead of turning to God and removing that defilement, Canaan turned more and more to their idols and went further and further into the darkest parts of their being. And it had gotten to the place where the people who populated that space had defiled it so much that the only answer was to completely remove them in the strongest possible way. If we read Genesis 15, we'll realise that this behaviour has been going on for a very, very, very long time in that region. This day of reckoning and judgement has been coming for at least 500 years, but definitely longer. It's not like this is some snap of the fingers, spur of the moment thing on God's part. God has always been consistently the God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love and this is the case even here. With the Canaanites and all their sin and defilement removed though, God and his people would take up residence. They would get to work in that place and the land would then become the place which was promised it would yield what it should. Not because these false deities made it possible, but the living God in their midst, whom they completely depended on and worshipped, ensured that the place would remain under his blessing. Between the journey from their current place in the wilderness to where God's destination was, Israel was going to have to have some choices. They're going to make some choices along the way that mattered. 
God is calling them to do things his way. Because unlike Canaan, their way would produce. God says, this is the way in which you can live. Verse 5, the person who obeys my decrees and laws will live by them. This is more than just drawing oxygen. This is the stuff that Jesus talked about in John. Life and life to the full. It's more than just existing. It's more than surviving. It's, an, it's a life that is thriving. It's a life with purpose. It's a life that's achieving. It's a life that is productive. The promised land was the place where true life would take place. But resisting and removing Canaan and its temptations was a journey the Israelites had to take on the way to that destination. And any foreigner who joined them along the way knew that this was the journey that lay ahead for them also. So the standards set out that we're about to read were for the people of God to adhere to. And anyone who wanted to join them along the way knew that was the group deal. That's the bookends of this chapter. The big picture is that God is doing something pretty massive here. Now we can dig into the middle part of the chapter. It's some key behaviours which reek of Canaan and is soon to be judged. Therefore it has no place amongst God's redeemed covenant people. This part has a bit of repetition, so for the sake of time, I've condensed it and I've summed it up here. You can check what I'm saying as you read this, but our passages today is from verse 6 onwards. This is the gist of it. No one is to approach any close relatives to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. This includes, but is not completely limited to, your mother. She's your mum. That's actually what it says. Also, any of your father's other's wives if they're applicable. Your granddaughters, your sisters, whether they step or not, your aunts and your uncle's wives who become aunts by marriage, your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law or your granddaughter-in-law, a woman plus her daughter, that one is particularly wicked. And if you must have a second wife, make sure it's not a sister of the one you already have. This creates a a rivalry that gets nasty. On top of this, don't go near your neighbour's wife. And do not have sexual relations with a woman during the uncleanness of a monthly period. Verse 21 in full, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Hmm. Consider how damaged Canaan was. If these are the things that God has to explicitly state for Israel to take on board. The first half of that, with all the bullet points, they're no-brainers, even in modern society. 
Nobody in society really questions or queries those things. Marriage laws in every Western nation on the earth uphold most of those standards, particularly the blood relative part. On an Australian marriage form, that's part of what I do as a celebrant, there's actually a spot where you have to, it asks you, are the parties related? Yes, no, and if so, how? Today we're very aware of the harm in families, emotionally, physically, that can come about from those sorts of unions. So those standards don't surprise us today. It's interesting to note that these are standards set in place in Leviticus, but apparently weren't quite in place before. Some of this can't be properly explained, or maybe it's a bit awkward. The dilemma of how Cain got his wife is in there. We also know of others. Jacob married sisters. He wanted one, got the other, had to work another seven years to get the one he wanted. That's in Genesis as part of Israel's genealogy. Abraham and Sarah were step-siblings. Same dad. The practice had gotten a lot more prevalent in both ancient Egypt and Canaan. There is ancient documentation out there that shows in particular siblings in royal circles entering into, commonly, entering into ancestral marriages. To the east, it has been taught that even Nimrod, the guy who tried to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis and turn people away from God, apparently he married his mum. At this point, we were 500 years at least removed from Abraham and probably as much as 2,000 years removed from Nimrod when we get to Leviticus. And all that ancestral conduct was probably becoming quite problematic at this stage. There's a point where you get a bit of, you know, there might be some genuine love and bond for each other, but it would have also conjured up all sorts of lusts and intent towards people that should have only experienced a loving and trusting environment free from sexual advances and abuse. When this was prevalent and permitted, no daughter, no niece, no vulnerable member of the family would be truly safe in their own homes. But with God's standards, your neighbour was safe too. There's a quick line in here about adultery with your neighbour's wife mentioned in all this. We realise even here that adultery in a physical setting as well as in an idolatrous one is a really big deal to God. And the idea of neighbour extends well beyond, just beyond next door. Jesus made that clear with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbour? Let me explain to you. He broadened the concept. But then we've got these other three things. These are clearly things that God wanted to single out as particular behaviours that reflect the way of Canaan and Egypt, not the way of Israel. One of the Canaanite people groups, the Hittites, had laws in place permitting sex with some animals but not others. There were laws that said this species yes, this species no. 
That's just one example of the depravity going on in that region. And it explains why God feels he needs to address this to Israel. God is actually saying to them, as you encounter Canaan, you are going to be told that this behaviour is okay. But I'm telling you that the way to life is nowhere near that. Molech was a deity of the Ammonites. These guys are specifically named in Genesis 15 when God speaks of what is to come for both Abraham's descendants but also the judgment against the Canaanite nations. The headquarters of Molech was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. If we study ancient Israeli geography, we'll realise that this is the future site of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount was chosen by God, so you know it wasn't going to end well with Molech and those who followed him. This might be confronting, but the means of sacrifice to Molech was the sacrifice of children. By forcing them to pass through a furnace of fire that was fashioned in the likeness of the deity. What scares me about this one? It took a very long time for Israel to drive this scourge out of the nation. Solomon himself dabbled in this cult in his older years. And in the days of Elijah, we read of cities being built at the expense of sons. In other words, they had been sacrificed to build a city. I don't have to spell this out much more to point out that in God's eyes, this was the ultimate defilement. And yet somehow this seemed like a viable mode of worship back then. Some people in that Canaanite region really wanted something bad enough to sacrifice children to get it. And it wasn't just the depraved nation too far gone, but even an an impressionable one like Israel got swept up in this, even with God in their backyard. To the point that God had to make this a decree to his people. This is the power of idols, friends. Any idol you embrace will cause you to throw out both your values and your future. Your idols will call you to do things you never thought you would ever do. Solomon, Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're a gift from God. And then he gets older and look where he ends up. In the case of Israel, every child, what the King James Version Bible calls seed, was sacred and to be kept safe. Israel was being trained to understand that it was their seed that would do something powerful in the world. In Genesis 3, the seed of the woman was going to make something right from the sin that she and Adam had committed. In Genesis 12, the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. Out of your descendants, the nations will be blessed. 
In Leviticus, we have the current living seed of Abraham. And they were to demonstrate the values of their redeeming king. But also, because the whole plan of redemption hadn't planned out, played out, their job was to protect every part of the seed of Abraham. Because out of those generations, Jesus himself would emerge as the ultimate blessing to the nations. Final bit is the issue of homosexuality. There's a clear call here for this behaviour to not be amongst God's people in this chapter. It's amazing to see that among all the things, there's a big list of don't do this and everyone nods in approval going, yeah, keep our children safe. Yeah, stay away from our neighbours. Yeah, don't enter those unions. We, we agree with all those things. And yet we fight tooth and nail over one line in this thing and try to go, it's out of context or it's out of a different time or it's not applicable to us anymore. Even as, as recent as last week, we find the, the concept is being interpreted to the point of splitting hairs that are simply not there to split. Homosexuality is spoken of five other times in the Scriptures. And it's always spoken of from a position of aggression and abuse. Twice in the Old Testament we read of hordes of men banging down doors seeking to have sex with male visitors. One of those is Sodom and Gomorrah. We know there was other things going on there that, that would have attracted judgment also. The other one happened on Israeli soil. Three times we read about it in the New Testament and they speak into the practice of it. And those who try to interpret the practice also believe it might refer to older tutors as an example, abusing and grooming students. Not once is a positive same-sex relationship or union spoken of in Scripture positively. In this passage from the words of God himself, this act is a detestable one. It's one that flies in the face of the order of God's creation. As far as I can see in Scripture, God did not make homosexual people, but people instead make choices about their sexual conduct. The order of creation is that God made a man. He made a woman. He set them up to be man and wife. He called that union marriage. And it was an arrangement entered into for life, leaving all others, forsaking all others. I feel like I'm conducting a wedding right now. Those are the rites of the Baptist church right there. No other sexual expression has a place among the people of God, no matter what type. Anything out of that marriage arrangement is not ordained by God. Anything outside of that arrangement reeks of Egypt and Canaan. It does not reek of, or it does not give the aroma of the promised land. Let me bring it into 2018 now. Think of some principles that we can take out of this. By the way, yes, that is a church that hung the, the rainbow flag. 
I wonder if you can see the journey of Israel and how it, to some degree, mirrors the church today. Because we're seeing that a lot. There's a lot of parallels between the movement of, of Israel and the journey that they are on and ours today. We can clearly see that in a number of different ways. Egypt was Israel's past. Egypt is a picture of ours too. There was a way of life that enslaved us and we were rescued from it. If you use the word saved to describe your status as a Christian, then this is what it actually means. I was rescued from Egypt. Revelation 21 tells us of eternity being a new heaven and a new earth. We have there a picture of a newly made holy city descending from heaven onto a fully restored earth. It's an amazing picture when you read about it. The title in my Bible says, Eden is Restored. The land that was once defiled will be a land restored with Christ on his throne in the midst of his people. I look forward to that day. What we inhabit now will be a restored version of itself in eternity. The Canaan idea kind of has traction in that light. That everywhere we tread, we set foot, we have elements of the kingdom at hand on the earth today. We have the presence of Jesus on the earth today. Not fully realised yet, but it is to come and has come. We're in that tension between the two. And yet the world still looks a lot like Canaan right now. But as the church wields influence in the world, as the people who follow Jesus continue to bear light for him, Canaan becomes to look more like kingdom. One day God will judge the modern Canaan. But unlike Israel's story, he will do it without our help. Jesus kind of made that clear. Our role is not a judgment one. Paul said we can't judge the world around us. We can't judge Canaan, but we can look in our own backyard. Between now and then, the church is to live in the way that leads to life. The way that is contrary to both Egypt and Canaan. As I think of today's passage, I see that it underscores what we looked at about adultery last week. Today we have the most extreme version of that idolatry in play here. It's a sort of idolatry that does harm the kids. And I had to stop and think about that for a moment. One, you will do things you never thought you would do if you continue to hold idols in your life. Your value system will go out the window. But two, our idols can actually become the next generation's idols too if we're not careful, if we're not willing to judge them and remove them now. 
Is there anything we uphold above God now with our kids watching, with the next generation watching? That will do harm if we hold on to them because our idols will become theirs too. We'll look at the moral issue here. Since idol worship is adultery and detestable before God, then it comes as no surprise that physical distortions of sexual conduct are also in that realm. If we are to properly display the values of the kingdom we will inhabit but are already part of, then our sexual conduct is part of that. Jesus actually upped the ante with the issue of adultery. He didn't dial it back or declare the law finished by any means. In Matthew 5, we read that Jesus widened the scope of adultery, not just the bedroom, but the sideways glance as well. To him, it was a matter of heart, not just conduct. We can read into this the issue of pornography. We can read into this the fantasies of partners we don't have as well. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told to flee from sexual immorality as a sin that not only does damage outside of ourselves but does harm deep within also. Verse 9 of that chapter, we're told that the unrepentant sexually immoral immoral person, including the practicing homosexual but also including others, is unfit for the kingdom of God. as I wrestled with this all through the week, as I have stopped and weighed up the opinion of every, everything I can find, and it's out there. Everyone has an opinion on this subject. I must conclude, as a believer, as a person who has rigorously studied the Scriptures on this, that all sexual conduct matters today equally as much as it mattered then. God's holiness then has not changed. God's call to be holy has not changed. When it becomes distorted and pursued in its distortion, it shows us that it's not a natural inclination but an idol in our lives. This will render us adulterous in our behaviour towards each other and adulterous before our God and Redeemer as well. But as we leave today, I want us not to focus on what we're not allowed to do. But to remember the status we have in light of the God that we serve. One of the scholars I've been interacting with over this series, um, he's a UK guy, he's a Baptist theologian. Derek Tidball, his name is. He made this statement about this chapter. I'm going to quote it verbatim. These laws are good news because they lead to, look at this, respect for women, honour between marriage partners, value on relationships, protection for children, regard for boundaries, care for the land and reaching human potential rather than lowering themselves to mere animals. There is good intent in what God is stating in this chapter. It's not a restriction of what we think our rights are. It's God going, I know what life looks like. Let me show you how to live it. 
Don't just exist but thrive. And let your morals be subject to the way I've prescribed it in order for you to live that way. And remember that none of what we read here comes from an aloof God. It's a relational one at close quarters. He desires to look at us with favour and offer blessing and well-being under his gaze. We know Jesus at close quarters and we're going to come around the communion table in a moment. We are both individually and together what Paul calls the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the chosen location of God's dwelling. In the ancient time when God chose a dwelling in Jerusalem, he did so in a place where Moloch was once worshipped. But he set up camp on the proviso that Moloch was judged and driven out. Friends, if God wants to set up house in us, what idols need to be judged? What behaviours need to be cleaned out for that to happen? Idolatry and sexuality are so deeply linked that it is easy for that which is being created, i.e. our sexual identity, for that to be worshipped rather than the one who created it in the first place, who is God. Don't let our morals become our idol. And don't let anything else rise itself up in our lives to become an idol also. Let's ensure our worship stays true. Let's live while still in Canaan in the way that leads to life. Because that is the way that anticipates the life that is to come.